0: Hi, this is Mike Huggins. I'm the author of Going Home, a CEO Self-Discovery Behind Bars, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel.
1: Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Michael Huggins. Michael is a former COO who ran a $2 billion business but ended up going to prison for a responsible corporate officer misdemeanor for illegal activities that occurred under his watch but which he didn't know about. Coming out of prison, he turned down lucrative job offers and started the Transformation Yoga Project, a nonprofit organization which serves criminal justice, substance abuse, and youth. He's a graduate of Villanova and earned his MBA at Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's here to talk about his book, Going Om, A CEO's Self-Discovery Behind Bars. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'd like to hear when you were growing up, Michael, who's someone who influenced or inspired you?
0: Well, that has to be my father. My father was an amazing guy. We grew up in Upper Darby, and he worked for General Electric. And he just gave so much for our family with his career. We moved around a bit, but he always provided for us. And we came from very, very humble beginnings. And he did provide an opportunity for us to go to school and get jobs. And at a at a price for him, he sacrificed a lot, missing a lot of our personal. Uh, activities and sports and just school plays and things like that, but he was always there for us when we really, really needed him. So he was both my idol and someone who I aspired to, but but later in life was someone I, I could also talk to about the trials and tribulations and some of the things that I was going through on a personal level.
1: What was the message you got from the sacrifices he made in order to make sure that you and your brothers and sisters were able to do the things that you did that he supported?
0: Well, I think he was what I would say a man's man in that he did back in that era, a lot of the World War II veterans, they had the sense of duty and he certainly had that sense of duty of providing an environment for our family to have a really enjoyable and a happy life. And knowing that he went, worked long hours, traveled quite a bit, uh, worked weekends, all that, uh, never complained about it and took advantage of those opportunities that he had to be, spend time with us, and it was uh, really a pleasure to do that. So it was it was the idea that you have a sense of duty and to your family, that comes first. And um, yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest
1: thing, Bill. And he got a lot of satisfaction from seeing his family enjoy the sacrifices he made, the results of that.
0: He did, and he was the first one in his family to go to college uh, through the long line of uh, going back several generations. And so education was really important for him. And that was the entree. He went through the GI Bill and ended up getting the job for General Electric and was almost a lifer. General Electric spent uh, almost 30 years there, very loyal and felt so strongly about education as a entree for being able to have a a life that might be enjoyable or a life that would be interesting um, and using both your mind and um, your other attributes you have.
1: Well, in your book and through your story, Michael, you you tell us about how you were sent to prison as a responsible corporate officer, and that's a position that's more common than many people realize. I think a lot of listeners may be involved in things where they have responsibilities as an officer of a company or as part of a nonprofit board. I remember having fiduciary responsibilities as a board member, and many of my board colleagues acted as if preparing for meetings and voting on policy and budgets. Was always someone else's responsibility. What's your perspective on the role of being responsible corporate officer and how people really need to view it because of the implications that can happen?
0: Right. So there's two ways I look at that, Bill. The first is that when we start to move through our careers and we might get a promotion, we tend to look at, oh, this is fabulous. This is going to help my career. This is going to help my income. But we don't really take the time to understand as business leaders what other obligation does that opposed upon me. And I think that's the missing piece that we, but we need to understand what we are signing up for. And I don't mean it necessarily, I, I hear what you're saying about fiduciary responsibility and and all that. Some of that is somewhat obvious and that, um, I think that comes with the territory, but i give you an example in my particular case. Our company was a medical company. And so we were regulated by the FDA. We had internal controls. We had a quality department. We had a regulatory department. We were audited often by the FDA as part of normal course of business. So the idea of having procedures, processes, uh, chain of command was not the issue. The issue was more of a cultural one, what I call it the soft side of internal controls that I think many business leaders overlook that well, I've got, I've got this thing in place, I can check the boxes that I'm covered. But you're really not because ultimately, as business leaders, you don't actually even have to be an officer you can be held responsible for the activities that occur under your watch. In fact, that is the definition of a responsible corporate officer. So in my particular case, and in and in general, a responsible corporate officer only has two requirements. One is that you are a senior level person in the company. And number two is something happened under your watch and that you didn't stop it. So the idea that you knew about it and didn't stop it, is irrelevant or the idea that you didn't profit from what was happening is also irrelevant under the eyes of the law as long as something happened under your watch and you need to know about it then you're held responsible and so that is something that i think when people first hear about that they're saying well that doesn't make any sense well it really does in the sense that we should be holding our executives accountable we should be looking at our internal controls or the, the softer internal controls things like organization design, how we communicate, how do we retain documents or what's our, how do we write emails, all these things where we don't always think through because we think we have a formal structure in place. So it's a bit of a wake up call in my particular case. And in general, the responsible corporate officer is a misdemeanor. But in any case, it's still a criminal charge. And that's
1: what I was charged with. And Michael, before we get into that, Let's just go back and just highlight that because you're talking about something that affects business leaders every day. It's the soft skills and the part of the culture that can undermine or go countercurrent to how all of these structures are put in place in order to make sure things are done properly. Talk about what people should look for in order to just kind of give a quick review and investigate how their culture is supporting a proper level of responsibility in their business
0: right so uh, there's several ways i would look at that bill one would be virtually every company has some type of mission statement or logo or, or motto that they follow and and it's usually something like the american flag and apple pie you know something kind of nice and makes sense but the question is is that really internalized by the organization or do we just give lip service to what the mission of the organization is and for my particular experience, we were a medical company, a medical device company, and so we were all about patient care. So anything that we would do that might jeopardize patient care should be questioned. And we obviously had some pressures on individuals in the organization to get things done. And and they, I think what they did is they said, well, this is probably more important than focusing on what the law says, and I think I can get this product out a little faster by doing certain things. And I think that can go back to what is the overall mission that's understood and practiced by the employees. I say that's really the first thing, but the second thing would be, I refer to this as a soft controls and soft controls would be culture in the company. So when something, what is the process when things are red flagged? Are they they given lip service or are they taken seriously In, in this case Things were identified within our internal control system, and they were sort of overlooked because of the process, because the product was a little bit different than our normal product. And I think one could rationalize saying, well, yeah, that's our process, but this is just a little bit different.
1: Therefore, it's okay to do what we did. So managers are looking at this and saying, well, we're making an exception or we're diluting or distorting the rules because we don't want to... Rock the boat. We don't want to delay delivery. We don't want to upset our customer. These are the kinds of pressures that people are giving into. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, I would say not, I wouldn't say that strong though. I think it's more subtle than that. In this particular case, it was a different product, so the product was not the normal product that we would sell. In the case of that, and so one could argue that some of the rules we had in place for this new product weren't necessarily applicable yeah. or and the employees who were reviewing this product in our quality control area and in our regulatory area, they weren't necessarily qualified to make that judgment. So real quick, we were a metal company making screws and plates and nails. So we, had, we knew everything about metals, how to evaluate it, you know, anything to do with that. But this product in question was a biomaterial. So it was not metal. It was a, it was a synthetic material. So the same controls that we had in place to make sure we had the quality there for the metal products, it just didn't function properly for a non-metallic device. And that was the first big red flag that we should have identified that, hey, this is different than what we normally do. And what we didn't do is we didn't question whether the system would operate properly. And so to me, the lesson learned is if you have take a strategic change or a new strategic product, it's not just about getting the product out. It's about evaluating whether your systems can adequately manage that new direction you're going, whether it's a product or whether it's a new business line, are your systems in place to adequately manage that?
1: I think that's a big lesson for everyone listening, Michael. People need to realize that if you're going to step outside of your lane, there are implications that are associated with that. And it means looking at the whole process and all of the interlocking systems from top to bottom. Many times, Absolutely under the, correct. Yeah, many times under the pressure of doing business, that doesn't always occur. And there are consequences to that.
0: That's correct. The second item I would mention would be what's the overall corporate culture when it comes to adversity and not not day-to-day things when things are going fine, but when it comes to adversity, what's the corporate culture? And in my mind, there's two ways to go. One is to fight it and the other is to try to negotiate or work with whoever agency you're dealing with to come to some agreement, some settlement so that you can learn a lesson and move on from there. In, In my particular case, the company I was with, they decided to take a more adversarial approach and so as these things were raised, the company, generally speaking, got very defensive. And when you get defensive, you start getting lawyers involved. And in the case, this case, the lawyers of the, the government said, well, great, bring it on. You know, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, we're happy to take you down there. And so I think part of the other piece of this responsible corporate officer is how do you deal with adversity? Uh, and it's not something I think you can necessarily answer until you get into, into the heat of the battle, if you will. And so I think that's some, another piece of it is you really need to understand what's the company culture, what's the response going to be to adversity? Is it fight or flight kind of a thing?
1: Michael, I imagine that when that was happening, you weren't driving the process. It was out of your hands, lawyers were making those decisions, and you were kind of feeling less empowered and in control than probably ever before. Is that close to the story?
0: Well, beyond
1: that, I
0: wasn't even with the company. So I left the company for unrelated reasons. So when I left the company, the investigation hadn't turned to individuals, it was still a general investigation. So I had left and and became the CEO of a different company. And so I'm sort of watching from afar, a bit aghast about, wait a second, this is their strategy? (laughs) This is how they're responding, as best I could tell. And I was just one piece of the puzzle. So the impact that they had as far as the adversarial approach clearly impacted me and i was watching it with no say in the process so that's the other piece of it is once you go down or you're challenged or you're uh, identified as a target then it's really difficult to control the process you lose
1: control for sure what was the perhaps scariest moment for you during this whole process was it when you're in the holding area was it when you were being introduced to the prison? Was it you know maybe the first night? What was it that, when you look back on this, that was the lowest point that you had to face?
0: Well, surprisingly, the probably the lowest point was at the point at the beginning when I was actually charged with this misdemeanor as a responsible corporate officer, because up until then, I had a very successful 30-year career, and the thing that I cherished the most was my integrity. And that was challenged. And that was, I believe, taken away from me. And so at the end of the day, what do you have as a person? You have to, you have your own personal integrity. And I really felt that was challenged. And so living in the community with people who looked at me differently, this, this was a, a big story in the Philadelphia area and even nationally. So that was really, really difficult. That was the first thing. And then secondly, it was the timing. This whole process took seven years to unfold. So by the time, from the time the FDA started the process to the time I was actually sentenced was seven years. And so I had a lot of time to think about this and then explore what was going to happen if I ended up going to prison. So the prison experience was its own story and life-changing in many, many ways. And I think life-changing generally in a positive way, but it was One piece of a long journey that was a whole process for me evaluating who I was as a person, what am I doing with my life, how am I treating my family, and how can I give back in spite of this adversity.
1: Michael, I have to say, I think a lot of people listening are wondering right now if they would have the same strength to be able to call a tour of prison, not a tour of prison, but a stay in prison, a positive life-changing event that's truly a reflection of the mindset that you brought in. It's truly a reflection of decisions you made about how you were going to view the experience. Can you share a little bit about how you navigated that so that you look back on it and say it was a a life-changing experience and a positive one?
0: Yeah. So I would say, here's my theory. My theory is this, that in our everyday lives, we can live in what I call the gray zone, meaning that my last couple of years in the corporate world, for example, I wasn't overly happy. In fact, I wasn't happy at all. I was, but I was reaping the perks as a business executive. I had good salary. I, I had travel, you know, I met really interesting people and lots of responsibility. But deep down in my core, my last couple of years there, I wasn't really motivated or not motivated. I wasn't really fulfilled or happy. I just felt like I should be doing something different, but I was probably afraid to make that change. And what I really wanted to do is I really wanted to explore this thing with yoga, which I had explored because I had chronic back problems. And I stumbled onto yoga and it provided a lifeline for pain relief and then started providing some clarity of my thought. But we have it in our lives. We can live in this gray zone and get by. It could be our career. It could be our personal situation. Maybe we're in a relationship that's okay. I'm not saying abusive, but just it's okay, but not as loving as maybe you would like it to be. But we get by because that's all right. And maybe if you you say, oh, okay, I'm just going to not focus on that, I'll just deal with my kids. But we get by, but we're not overly excited or happy about it or motivated so much. Now switch that to the prison environment. And my belief is that that's a black and white situation. Every day I had to make a choice and others have to make a choice. Am I going to make the best of the situation or am I going to let the situation take over me? And you can see that in the other men who are incarcerated. Some are working really hard to learn, to experience life in a different way, and to rebuild their lives, while others have sort of given up, they've surrendered, and they've become institutionalized. So for me, it was actually not that hard of a decision. Every day I woke up and said, I'm going to make the best of the situation, because if I didn't do that, there was a chance to fall back. And my lesson learned is that when I got back out is, How can I continue to provide that clarity of thought so that I don't settle for something that's not serving me or my family? How can I provide a process for me to deal with discomforts, particularly returning back into the community? How can I provide a pathway so I can maintain some happiness even though I'm dealing with lots of adversity?
1: Michael, it's really interesting how you found the greatest degree of freedom behind prison bars more so than when you were working at a job that you felt imprisoned by and you went through the motions, but you actually used that opportunity to bring those questions of what really matters in your life into stark relief and to make them a, a daily practice. Are you ready for the, my quest for the best lightning round? I am. Excellent. Bring it on. <laughs> Michael, describe three components of your morning routine for an ideal work day.
0: Number one, I spend a small amount of time every single morning, just by myself with my thoughts. It may be a short meditation. It may just be centering myself with a cup of coffee, just quieting my mind and um, having a sense of gratitude for what has happened and what may happen for this day. Most important thing for me is that sense of grounding every single morning in gratitude. Second thing I do is perhaps becoming, because of the prison experience, is I do something physical every single day whether it's walking or even with my desk. I move to a stand-up desk so that I'm doing something physical. And when I can, I practice yoga multiple times a week or at least try to go to the gym. So the physical aspect of maintaining myself healthy is a huge part of my routine. And the third thing is I do try to find a similar kind of balance between business and pleasure. So I used to be uh, what I would call a type A plus guy nonstop work, uh, sort of similar to my father. And I've come to realize that I can be much more efficient if I work less and spend time enjoying life and maintaining a proper perspective. And, And as you know, Bill, the work I'm doing now and with this amazing organization, the Transformation Yoga Project, we work with people dealing with really significant trauma and there's this thing called vicarious trauma where things like healthcare workers, they take on that trauma. And so it, to me, it's very important to find ways to release the stress in, we have of our jobs, whether it's
1: going to work with people with trauma or just everyday job in the corporate world. Interesting. If you could put a slogan about your work and the mission that you're on now on a billboard that everyone drove by, had to see for a month each morning, what would it say?
0: I have a logo that I use. It's called the positive, the possible, and the genius in each of us. Something I just believe in that if we can maintain a positive attitude, a positive approach, some people call it fake it till you make it. But if you can maintain a positive approach to things, eventually that will start to manifest. And the other one is the possible. For me, the transition from a CEO, business leader, to now the president of a, uh, amazing, wonderful nonprofit and uh, an active yoga teacher it was something I never thought was possible. I thought that was insane to make that transition from a CEO to a yoga teacher, but it's possible and it's the exact place I should be. And of course, the last one is the genius in all of us. The, my experience through the prison system, mm-hmm. I met so many amazing people that have such untapped human potential that I really feel motivated that we can provide some tools for people to achieve what's the potential that lies inside of them. Maybe they're hesitant or they've been beat down too many times, but we all have something
1: that is incredibly positive. And um, let's find a way to bring that out so we can live a full life. And that's really an abundance mentality that comes through. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction?
0: I would say this idea of uh, judging is probably one that sticks with me because along the way, we tend to judge people. And when you dig through all that, basically we judge people similar to the way we judge ourselves. And normally we're really hard how we judge ourselves. So I make it a point not to judge people. And what I kind of joke that to me, the only person that should be judging anybody is the judge. And in, in my case, the judge judged me. I didn't necessarily agree with him, but that's his job. It's not my job to judge others because I have no appreciation of understanding what that individual is going through in their lifetime or even in a current period. So I think if without judging people, we can then hold ourselves open to understand and appreciate the goodness that lies within us and And over time, if we provide that state or that abundance, I think that'll show and other people will will do the same.
1: What a great philosophy. I really like that. Michael, if people had to take away one lesson from the experience that you learned and that you wrote about in Going Home, what would the idea or lesson be that you'd want everyone to be able to take away?
0: Well, for me, I think it's this concept of where you are doesn't define who you are. And it hit me so much while I was incarcerated because we call or we label people as inmates. I'd like to think that that's not right terminology, that in my particular case, I happen to be a man who was incarcerated or there's women who are incarcerated. So we can treat each other as humans first and then we can say they're going through something. Same same with people who are dealing with substance abuse. They're not an addict, they're a person dealing with substance abuse. And the reason I think that's important is because it doesn't, where you are doesn't, def, you may be currently going through substance abuse recovery, but that doesn't define who you are. So your journey is as important as your destination. And every experience that we have, good, bad, or indifferent, over time provides us wisdom. And that wisdom makes us unique, makes us interesting, and allows us to provide some type of contribution to society at large.
1: Michael, I remember a, a quote that you wrote in the book about the human spirit is strong but it can be broken if it's not nurtured. What do you think is important and and how do you apply that in your life about nurturing your spirit and encouraging those around you to do the same?
0: Well, for me, nurturing my spirit, I am incredibly fortunate to be surrounded by uh, people who choose to work with trauma, particularly in the yoga world. And my fellow workers with the Transformation Yoga Project, they are an amazing inspiration for me. They're doing work that just nourishes me because I know what they're going through, what they put out there and what we receive back from our students who are so appreciative of this work or these tools for them to to navigate life. So I view it all as this connection that it's a circle of energy. We're providing energy to the people we're serving and they provide energy back to us in a way that's very nourishing because it just feels like we are making a contribution in a way that can affect change in a, in a, both at a, at an individual basis, but over time, we're starting to see communities change. Maybe a little bit of a softening of certain prisons because there's a sense of mindfulness there that wasn't there
1: before. Well, Michael, you've shared so many great ideas with on my quest for the best. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience today. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So a couple of points that I want to bring out and recall are, first of all, with being a corporate responsibility officer, have two requirements, only that you're a senior level officer, and that if something happens, it doesn't matter whether you have knowledge or you profit from what happens, you're responsible. It's really where the buck stops. You reminded us and taught us about how soft cultures really reflect culture of an organization and how you address things um, during times of adversity, whether you're going to fight or negotiate, and the implications of each. You talked about your example where you had taken on something outside your lane in your medical devices company, and you talked about where you knew everything about metals, but you took on a biomaterial, a synthetic, and it was something where you said the words you weren't qualified to judge, and now here at the end of the interview, you talked about not judging being something that you've let go of and has really been an important lesson to you. You reminded us to beware and be cautious of living in the gray zone where you're not unhappy, but you're not unhappy enough to really get the benefits that you want and live the life at the level that you want. You talked about the importance for you of yoga being a, a lifeline for pain relief, but also for clarity of thought and how important that was for you. And what you really um, brought home at the end was is that where you are doesn't define who you are. So Michael Huggins, author of Going Home, A CEO's Self-Discovery Behind Bars, I want to thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate the time. Say, Michael, before we say goodbye for now, where is it that we can find out more about you and your work online?
0: So there's two places the best to reach me. For me, personally, about the work I'm doing more in the business world, that would simply be mdhuggins.com. And For those interested in this work of the Transformation Yoga Project, please check out transformationyogaproject.org, where there's just a variety, uh, lots of information about dealing with trauma and the, the
1: populations we serve, as well as our amazing team. Well, we will link to those sites, as well as your book, as well as some of the other resources we mentioned during the interview. Michael Huggins, once again, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.